We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Arima. Today, we welcome Karen Bartram from Cameron Memorial Hospital in Indiana. Karen will report on Z codes and how they can reveal insights about your community. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling John MD. Laurie Johnson has the latest coding news. Tim Paulus at the Tuesday News Desk and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who plans to make a generous donation to this year's Toyotathon, if it's tax deductible, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark. Yeah, I can hardly wait. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 533rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Well, it is Giving Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, say, I hope you and your family enjoyed a very pleasant Thanksgiving, Erica. Yes, it was awesome to have my family come in to celebrate with me and our father. I hope you had a great one, too. I did, indeed. Thank you. And actually, you know, when I think about Thanksgiving and all the turkey and all the food, you know, I'm kind of reminded about food insecurity and its implications for social determinants of health. You know, food insecurity, you probably know this already, is one of the more common social determinants of health. Yes, right? and the cost of a Thanksgiving meal was estimated at 20% higher this year than last. Wow, yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad we have uh, Karen Bartram with us today. She's going to be reporting on how the social determinants of health can reveal so much about the the health of a community. And speaking of the word reveal, uh, would you please reveal what your talkback is going to be this morning? Well, I'm going to talk about the (laughs) P-H-E. Oh, wow. That's public health emergency. Yeah, thanks very much. And Erica, we are looking forward to hearing your talkback segment, as we always do. Folks, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talked In Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And most providers understand the no surprises requirement for insured patients. Effective as of January 1st of 2022, insured or self-pay patients are also protected from unexpected high medical bills. If a consumer doesn't have health insurance or doesn't plan to use insurance to pay for a health care service, they must be given a good faith estimate of what they may be charged before they get the item or service. Once an uninsured patient schedules a visit that a provider or facility must give them a good faith estimate of the amount that it expects to charge for the item or service. A provider or facility must also give this good faith estimate when the consumer requests it, regardless if they schedule the item or service or not. There is a patient-provider dispute resolution process now available for uninsured patients who get a bill from a provider that's $400 more than the expected charges of the good faith estimate. Under the patient-provider dispute resolution process, an uninsured patient or their authorized representative may initiate the dispute process and the resolution entity to determine the appropriate amount of the consumer must determine the resolution. If a patient chooses to dispute a charge for an item or service, the provider will be asked to provide the good faith estimate they provided to the patient, the bill they sent to the patient, and any supporting documents they may help explain why the bill is higher than the amount of the estimate. Providers will be emailed a link to the Federal Dispute Resolution Portal where they can upload the requested documents. The dispute resolution entity will contact the provider if any additional information is needed. And once a determination is made, the dispute resolution entity will notify the provider and the patient. 
During the patient-provider dispute resolution process, the provider and the patient can continue to negotiate the bill during this process, but providers may not move the bill to a, to a collection agency or threaten to do so. They must pause collections if the patient, if the bill is already in collections. They can't collect late fees on unpaid amounts, and they can't threaten to take retaliatory action against the patient for initiating the patient-provider dispute resolution process. If the patient and the provider agree to a payment amount before the dispute resolution entity makes a determination, the provider must notify the dispute resolution entity as soon as possible, but no later than three days after the, after the settlement is reached. Along with my oral article and my written article, there's going to be links uh, to the forums that I've mentioned. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That's Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday. It's November the 29th, and you're listening to the 533rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by, everybody. It's the holiday season, and no one is more prepared to celebrate than MedLearn Media. Now, through December 5th, you can save 20% on educational products from Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing. This 20% discount cannot be used with any other discount or special offer. Again, now through December 5th, get a 20% discount on Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing educational products. To take advantage of this special 20% discount, enter promotional code CYBER22 at the time of checkout. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. The federal fiscal year kicked off on October 1st. Did you review the ICD-10-CM guideline changes? Coding Clinic, fourth quarter 2022, has reviewed these changes. I am going to review chapter-specific changes with you this morning. Chapter 1, Infectious and Parasitic Diseases, with regards to HIV codes, um, there's one regarding the sequencing of HIV codes. If the patient is admitted for an HIV illness and the reason is hemolytic uremic syndrome associated with HIV, assign D59.31, which is the code for hemolytic uremic syndrome, followed by B as in boy 20. If the patient is on antiretroviral medications and documented as with HIV disease, assign, again, B20. Sequencing of hemolytic uremic syndrome with sepsis, if the reason for admission is hemolytic uremic syndrome that is associated with sepsis, assign D59.31 as the principal diagnosis. Codes for the underlying systemic infection and other conditions may be assigned as secondary diagnoses. With regards to under-immunization for COVID-19, um, this has been added to the documentation by clinicians other than the patient's provider section, which is section I. subsection B.14. Now let's move on to Chapter 2, Neoplasms. If the patient is admitted or seen for treatment of the primary site, assign the primary malignancy as the principal diagnosis. The exception is if the patient is receiving chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or immunotherapy. 
When a malignancy of lymphoid tissue metastasizes beyond the lymph nodes, assign a code from code range C81 to C85 with a final character of 9, which identifies extranodal and solid organ sites, rather than a secondary neoplasm of the solid organ. Moving to Chapter 4, which is Endocrine, Nutritional, and Metabolic Diseases, If the patient is treated with insulin, oral hypoglycemics, and injectable non-insulin medications, assign codes Z79.4, Z79.84, or Z79.85 for the drugs the patient is using. This is true for diabetes type 1 and type 2. And if you remember, in the past, we only assigned one code, so that's the change there. Chapter 5 is Mental, Behavioral, and Neurodevelopmental Disorders. The codes describing in remission can only be assigned based on the provider's clinical judgment and documentation unless it's instructed by the, the classification. Blood alcohol level has been added to the documentation by clinicians other than the patient's provider guideline, which is, again, I.B.14. Etiology and severity of dementia is based on the clinician's judgment and documentation as well. And if it's not documented, assign the code for the unspecified. If the severity of the patient's dementia progresses during the say, assign the code for the highest severity level, which is reported during the stay. Obviously, I have not got through all of the chapters, and I will talk about those changes in chapters 15, 16, 19, and 21 the next time I'm on. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare executive with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again for an excellent report, and we do look forward to your continuing on this story about the coding clinic that was released recently. We continue with our series here on Tucked In Tuesdays called Journaling John M.D. Here now is the Journaling John M.D., Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, sir, and good morning to everybody. And I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving as we have so much to be thankful for. Today I want to talk about when reducing length of stay supersedes quality of care, quality of patient care. We are all aware of reducing length of stay, but when when does that metric interfere with the quality of the patient care and subsequent results? There are several areas where we can see efforts for this reduction, and let me just start with only one, but with the but it's actually the beginning, and it's in the emergency room, and it's often referred to as throughput. The goal is to get the patient's disposition set and completed in as short a period of time as possible, door to door, if you will. The goal behind this most times is to improve patient satisfaction or experience, which is a measurement in value-based purchasing that influences hospital-based incentives. This is called HCAPS, Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems, a survey. Sometimes in order to improve results, this is accomplished by incentivizing the ED physicians by making it a metric for their bonuses. We have all seen how this may actually adversely affect patient quality of care. There are other areas where reducing length of stay can have an adversarial effect on the quality of care provided, but the focus remains on getting patients out of the hospital. There's a fine line between reducing length of stay and not increasing readmissions. 
Also, other metrics are measured in value-based purchasing with Medicare and other variations in the commercial payer world. Most of the time, it all works well, but the fallout of those times when it doesn't can have grave consequences on patients' morbidity and even mortality, which ironically becomes another negative metric, such as readmission rates, mortality rates, hospital-acquired conditions, present on admission, never events, and more. But what inspired this journal entry is a true experience of a family member of mine, which is not unique, but exemplifies the problem. This family member was recuperating from a rather severe episode of COVID, which had resulted in significant fatigue and deconditioning, as we all know occurs, in somebody who is already challenged with diabetes, walking, knee, and back problems, and osteoporosis. At home physical therapy, uh, after the, the COVID experience was helping, until she fell and suffered an angulated lower leg fracture of the tibia and fibula. Here's where it all starts. She underwent surgery, successful surgery, with pinning and casting of the fractured area. This was done as she was discharged on post-op day number two with a temperature of undetermined etiology to a facility for rehabilitation. We all know what a temperature can mean after surgery. The temperature elevation continued, leading to altered mental status within less than 24 hours of arrival at the, 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 uh, the subsequent facility requiring sending her back to the hospital, but reluctantly on the part of the rehab hospital. In addition, the hospital, the hospital itself did not want to admit her, even to observation, until strongly encouraged by a family member, who, by the way, is an ED and previous ICU nurse. The reluctancy on their part was unclear, but one wonders if it had anything to do with a rather quick readmission in a patient who have never, should have never been discharged so quickly at all and was not stable. So in summary, we have a couple of scenarios that are reflections of decreasing length of stay resulting in significant quality issues, inappropriate early discharge, and reluctance to appropriately readmit a patient. In conclusion, metric-driven incentives may not have the best results, but really, what happened to, quote, first, do no harm, end of quote. Back to you, Erica. Unintended consequences. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospital, both in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you both. And by the way, speaking of Cameron Memorial Community Hospital, Karen Bartram from that facility is going to be joining us shortly. And a program reminder, everybody, you're listening to the 533rd Live Edition of Talk Tuesday. Stand by. Coding for E&M Evaluation and Management Services is a challenge, and the 2023 E&M updates to codes and guidelines are complex. You need to master them now because they will impact revenue and compliance. Good news. In an upcoming webcast, Becky Rodrian Jacobson will walk you through the 2023 E&M chapter and category guidelines specific to emergency department and hospital visit professional services. She will provide details that support each category and demonstrate how to compliantly document each element of the E&M and ultimately to select the correct level of service to help ensure a compliant reimbursement. Learn from Becky Rodrian Jacobson. Register now for the 2023 E&M Workshop, Master the New Guidelines for ED and Hospital Visit Professional Services, now on sale at the ICD University Bookstore. 
Coming up next, our lead story on Z-Codes with Karen Bartram. Today's lead story is presented by Hitex, dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. Find them at Hitex.com. Here now is Karen Bartram. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to today's listeners. I want to introduce you to Margaret. She's 71. She's admitted to the hospital after experiencing weakness and shortness of breath. Margaret has congestive heart failure, and she's been battling breast cancer for the last two years. An admission assessment revealed that Margaret's husband, Bill, had recently died after a brief illness. And while Bill took care of the finances, the house, and the transportation, he also ensured that Margaret followed up with her doctor's appointments and treatments. Margaret tearfully shares with the nurse that her two daughters, Mary and Sarah, who live in nearby towns, have voiced concerns wondering if she can remain safely in her home, that some of her appointments may need to be rescheduled due to lack of transportation, uh, being fearful if her finances will cover future costs, and, and ultimately who can help with the daily needs and supervision now that she lives alone. Healthcare is filled with so many poignant patient stories like Margaret's, and they're vulnerable stories of uncertainty and scarcity, insecurity, anxiety, and the fear of the unknown. As clinicians, we are educated to ask open-ended questions and to build trust in our patients and to seek to learn what burdens or barriers they experience in their daily lives. So listening and understanding these challenges you know, may be hardwired into the daily clinical workflow. However, it's often not documented in the medical record. So what's the result? Valuable patient details are lost. Information learned is not passed to that next clinical staff member. And the patient is at risk of not connecting with necessary community services and support. In 2016, ICD-10 Z55-65 codes became available, providing data and analysis of the social drivers of health in a population or a community. These social drivers include problems related to education, literacy, employment, occupational exposure, housing, social environment, upbringing, family support, and psychosocial circumstances. While there's been an increase of industry discussions about Z-codes recently, a few challenges for healthcare organizations exist, such as when is the best time to ask the patient these questions? Where is it best documented in the medical record? Can other clinicians view this information? How are the referrals made to get support for the patient? And finally, are the Z-codes recognized, coded, and ultimately added to the claim? When ICD-10 Z-codes 55 to 65 are captured, trends in this data can validate or reveal what was believed to be true about the needs of a population or a community. These identified societal factors can be the catalyst for funding new programs um, and closing the gaps for the most vulnerable and at-risk populations. Patients want to share their stories and, and trust that the healthcare organizations are committed to hearing, studying, developing initiatives to promote the health and wellness in the communities where they live. So to accomplish this, really three elements would need to exist. First, it's to learn the patient's story, document the responses, and get connected to the community and social resources. Secondly, recognize and assign Z55 to 65 codes when identified and analyze the data. Finally, identify health disparity gaps 
get supportive programs initiated and begin to change patients' lives. Margaret and her daughters, thank you for listening. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Karen. That was great. That was the Director of Clinical Integration and Documentation at Cameron Memorial Health, Karen Bartram. Once again, here is Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here, Talk to Enthusiasts, called Talk Back. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thank you, Chuck. Last week, Terry Fletcher gave her observations and opinions about the current public health emergency, PHE. She pointed out that President Biden had declared that the pandemic was over. It is her opinion that this is political, and she supported her opinion by referencing a modestly bipartisan Senate vote held on November 15th, quote, to end President Joe Biden's pandemic emergency, close quote. I'm afraid I'm going to have to dissent. This pandemic is not Joe Biden's. It is not political and never should have been framed that way. This pandemic is medical and politicians can't end it with a vote or an ill-advised declaration on some televised interview. The United States no longer keeps pristine records of case rates or deaths. There's hardly a mention of COVID-19 in the media anymore, except for the pediatric triple-demic of influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and COVID-19, which is stretching our, especially pediatric institutions, beyond their capacity. However, if you go to worldometers.info slash coronavirus, you can see that the number of daily new cases equals other times experienced during the pandemic. What is very different is the number of daily deaths. But a review of the data reveals that in the last seven days, more than 1,000 people died in the U.S. from COVID-19. That is significantly lower from the earlier part of the pandemic where daily deaths exceeded 10,000 because vaccination, previous infection, and boosters reduced deaths. But it is not a trivial number of people, especially if it is your mother, grandmother, husband, or friend who died. The CDC is projecting an increase in COVID-19 hospitalizations in December by over 50%. They are having issues reliably forecasting deaths, although the numbers they are putting out are somewhere between 1,000 and 4,400 deaths per week. Interestingly, there is now a preponderance of vaccinated people who are dying because they have not received their boosters and because there have been a lot of people who have been vaccinated. I'm appalled to realize that I lost track. And I don't remember when we surpassed 1 million deaths. We are at approximately 1.1 million deaths as of November 23rd. India, with a population exceeding 1 billion people, has only recorded 531,000 deaths. This was not something we wanted to be number one at. I was wrong about a lot of things when the pandemic started. I thought emergency departments were going to be overrun in the early days, but I hadn't calculated on people staying home despite non-COVID illness. It never occurred to me that healthcare workers would be furloughed and discharged. In my wildest dreams, it never crossed my mind that people would refuse to get vaccinated when a safe, reliable, free vaccine became widely available. 
only 12% of the eligible population has received their bivalent booster. Only a little more than 30% of the population over 65% has. I was right about other things, though. I knew that being inundated with patients, especially ones who could have prevented their serious disease if they had only gotten vaccinated, was going to cause severe provider burnout and a mass exodus from healthcare. It also, the pandemic, also resulted in the death of over 1,700 healthcare workers. This will just exacerbate the problem with fewer healthcare workers being forced to do even more with less support. I didn't imagine that everyone was going to get fatigued of the pandemic and pretend it just didn't exist anymore. I also complained that we have no idea how many cases there really are because widespread home testing is not being registered anywhere. The cumulative case count published is over 100 million cases in the United States, but there have been times when the case rate has probably been 10 times that being presented. Now, a branch of the National Institute of Health has set up a new website at makemytestcount.org where people can help public health officials by documenting the results of their at-home test. They are not asking for name, birth date, or address to protect privacy. 85% of healthcare facilities are experiencing personnel shortages requiring financial incentives and green new professionals to fill their staffing gaps. Seems to me like this might constitute a public health emergency. I'm going to wait until the medical community declares the PHE over. Seems like it isn't only about COVID-19. Back to you, Chuck. Wow, thanks, Erica, very much. Excellent report. Now's the time for our town hall. Let's see what folks are saying today. Uh, Erica, there's a comment uh, from Michelle. Yes. Um, Tim, I believe this one is for you. Um, She was asking, uh, uh, is the No Surprises Act also valid for copayment for procedures as well, Um, especially in case insurance is not going to cover the entire cost cost of the procedure? Actually, the copayment would have to do with an insured patient. So, no, what I addressed today was for uninsured patients only, and, and copayment would be a different issue. Okay, thanks. Tim Powell, thanks very much for uh, your response to uh, Michelle on that uh, comment and question, and thank you again. By the way, uh, Tim Powell, we're going to be uh, we're going to be re- releasing Tim Powell's report on that very subject, so stand by for that. And I want to thank you all because this is going to be a wrap for our live 533rd live edition of Talk to Tuesday. Of course, I want to thank our panelists today, Karen Bartram. She reported our lead story this morning. Laurie Johnson with the Coding Clinic Report. Tim Powell, who's going to be. Uh, talking more about uh, the No Surprises Act that relates to the uninsured. Uh, Dr. John Zellum, and a very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And thank you again, everybody, for being with us today. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICDC Monitor. Everybody have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.